This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. This week on Cultivating Place, we take a step back in time and we get a lesson in garden history seen through the lens of holiday decorations and traditions from seasons past. We're joined by Laura Viancourt, head of horticulture and lead person preparing the historic Colonial Williamsburg Homes and Gardens for the holidays. This is a very garden and plant-based holiday tradition that has evolved over centuries. Laura joins us today to share more from the studios of WHRO in Williamsburg, Virginia. Welcome, Laura. Thank you. Glad to be here to talk with you about a very special time in Williamsburg. It is, I think, rated the best town in the United States to visit over the Christmas holidays because of the abundance of decorations and natural creativity. You had Grand Illumination on December 3rd. Before we get started with history and that, give us a little sense of of what it looks like and feels like there in historic Colonial Williamsburg right now, Laura. I think the appeal is the old-fashioned feel of Christmas because all our decorations are made with natural materials. And with that comes the wonderful fragrance of the pine and the balsam. And with the fires crackling, you get the nice wood smell too. And I think it just brings a feel of yesteryear and a time to slow down and really focus on the holiday. Yeah, yeah. And the the vision of the wreaths and the garlands on gates and doors and windows and around door frames is really just so... It's so rich and colorful and comforting somehow. Right. And we try to use a variety of decorations or elements in the decorations to inspire people to try these at home. Uh, Traditional red and green colors are used with fresh fruit with apples, but we also incorporate a lot of dried flowers, berries, and even some products that reflect the use of the building in the 18th century. Yeah. So that that gets me to a little bit about you and your background. As head of horticulture there at Colonial Williamsburg, what were your earliest influences getting started as a, a garden and plant person, Laura? Well, I grew up in the Delaware County, Delaware Valley area of Philadelphia, which is lovely, wooded. And I just, my mother believed we needed to be outside. (laughs) So I just grew up in the woods and I just had an affinity for being outside, playing in the woods and wanted to stay outside in my career. So I um, just knew that that's what I wanted to do. I fell in love with Williamsburg as a child. We came here on a vacation when I was in seventh grade, and that was it. I knew that this is where I wanted to be, which um, led me to Virginia Tech to go to school and study forestry and horticulture with the with the dream of one day being at Williamsburg. Yeah, that's great. And so what do you do to study for becoming a career, for, for following a career in either historic gardening and horticulture or public gardening and horticulture? 
there's so many more opportunities for that today. Mm -hmm. But back when I was um, going to school, my focus was on the science of horticulture and forestry, uh, just so I could be outside. And the history came once I started working here. And I began doing research on historic gardens while I was here. And then it's sort of like osmosis when you're out working in the gardens. I started as a gardener uh, 37 years ago. Wow. And so when, you, when you're out working in the gardens, you can't help but hear what the other guides are saying. Um, and that piques your interest. And so you go and do more research. So the, the history part evolved more while I was here. Mm -hmm. um, I got the basis in horticulture so I could start on the landscape staff here. Yeah. the It's funny that you say that you also fell in love with it as a child. I visited, I, I visited with my mother and my aunt, both professional gardening people, my aunt having been the head gardener at the historic home of James Monroe Ashlawn up in Charlottesville. Right. And, and we visited when I was maybe 10, and I just remember being – smitten. It was so beautiful and human scale and you could access the houses and all of the little gardens. Do you feel like, and that would have been probably around 37, 40 years ago for me, um, do you feel like it's changed a good deal in terms of the horticultural emphasis or offerings at Colonial Williamsburg over your time there? It's evolved since I've been here, but I think it's still the critical element in creating the ambiance of the historic area. And um, I think the trees in particular create the ambiance for our guests. And I, we have changed in that uh, focus has become more on authenticity and that we are using plants appropriate to the period. Uh, but other than that, I think the gardens themselves, as far as their design, have remained true to the original 18th century influences that the restoration architect, Arthur Shercliffe, um, put in his designs during the restoration. And when did that restoration start and, and take place? The restoration started in the 1920s, and it's amazing to me um, the vision that Reverend Goodwin had, he was a minister here at Bruton Parish Church and was concerned that the original buildings were collapsing and he sought a benefactor to restore these old buildings and that was John D. Rockefeller III. And so it started as a handful of buildings in the 1920s and today it encompasses over 500 buildings, over 300 acres. And it's really well integrated into the town of Williamsburg itself and into the College of William and Mary um, in, in almost a seamless way that is, again, very, very welcoming. And it has this sense of um, just accessibility, which is, I think, very uh, – it, it sets a tone in and of itself. Well, and that goes back to, I think, Francis Nicholson, who first laid the town out back in 1699. He's the same man that designed Annapolis. And there's that sense of order, uh, which you reference as it being comfortable, um, tying the college in to the 
main historic area or the capital at the time. So that orderliness, I think, gives a sense of comfort. And the foundation during the restoration bought a lot of property around the historic area to buffer it. So it would keep that 18th century ambiance. So we continue to work well with the city and the college today to keep that. Yeah, that, that feeling of community and interwovenness. What what are the, the dates of the earliest buildings and gardens there? 1928, I believe, was when the first building was opened, the Raleigh Tavern. Mm-hmm. What would be the earliest original date? Oh, 1699 is when the capital uh, was formed, and you already had buildings here. Um, Bruton Parish Church was already here, and the Wren Building at the college, mm-hmm. dating to the late 1600s. And uh, the capital was moved inland from Jamestown to protect it from attack from the water. And very early on, this town got started because the Crown didn't want people to buy land and have it sit idle. So you had to build a house and enclose it with a fence within two years or else your property would revert back to the Crown. So it was up and running very early so that by the 1730s, you had professional gardeners coming over to help the gentry with these pleasure gardens that they had installed to reflect their status. And that idea of the the gardens representing this visual cue back to people in England that we are doing fine, that we are we are good and civilized and all of that is such a it's just such a a funny sixteenth uh, century version of what people do with their gardens today when they when they build them and maintain them as status symbols. But there's also that wonderful pragmatism and usefulness of many of the gardens there as well. Definitely. And the town was divided into half acre lots. And depending on your status, you could purchase more than one, but you still had to decide how the site was used. And immediately behind the house was what we call the work yard, where your household chores would be done, such as plucking the chicken or scrubbing laundry. And then you had a garden yard um, if you had the labor to support that, because gardening definitely reflected status in the 18th century. Mm-hmm. And you would have orchards and paddocks to keep animals. So you had to, functionality came first, and then aesthetics came second. Describe for us, the, as you've already mentioned, the town, the historic town that is now Colonial Williamsburg was laid out on a grid system, very orderly, with these very uniformly shaped and sized uh, plots of land for houses and shops, and um, some are some are multiple lots, but they are in proportion all the way around, basically. Describe the different kinds of gardens. If you're a visitor and you walk there now, describe the different kinds of gardens that you're going to see on display there, and and what they each one might be teaching or sharing specifically with visitors now. We primarily have your pleasure gardens, which would have been at the homes of the gentry. And these were gardens 
that had sheer topiary flower beds, things that showed that the gentleman of the house had status and was interested in horticultural pursuits. And this was a small part of the population, but this was also the time of enlightenment. And so gentlemen could show their education through their garden. And I compare it to just an expensive piece of art. You have this amazing house with tea sets and furniture inside, and you're going to frame that house with a garden that reflects that same status. You wouldn't have original Van Gogh and then go to a discount store to buy the frame. So the garden was that setting, and that was usually a pleasure garden. But then you also had the kitchen garden, which contained plants of utility. We may call them vegetable gardens today, but in the 18th century, um, the term vegetation is because they considered all plants vegetables. Um, what we consider vegetables were herbs, and that's where you get your field herbs, your pot herbs, your salad herbs. And anything in the kitchen garden had some utilitarian value. So your fruit trees, even some flowers, because they may have been used for dyes or cosmetics or something. Orchards are an integral part of our design because of lack of preservation. The colonists were growing those things that would preserve well, and fruit was one of those things. They would dry it or brandy the fruit. They would also, the rotting fruit could be um, used for feed for the animals. So you would see a lot of pastures throughout the town as well. And those are the primary components, and you have combinations of, and that's where the, the garden tours and interpretation is important because you'll have this very ornamental pleasure garden right next to maybe a pasture that's not that well kept. But to me, people have always been people, and I'm sure every one of us has someone in the neighborhood that you wish would keep up their yard better. <laughs> and that was the same back then. And there's also the neighbor that you just wish you had the time to have a garden like that. And and I don't think people have changed that much. And so you'd, we try to show that variety in the historic area as well. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today we're speaking with Laura Viancourt, head of horticulture for Colonial Williamsburg, where since the late 1930s, the historic buildings and grounds have decked the halls for an old-fashioned Christmas celebration. What started in the late 1930s as decorating four historic buildings for the 12 days of Christmas is now decorating close to 100 buildings for almost six weeks. Historical garden and horticultural research guides which plant materials can be included in the decorations. We'll be right back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. Hi, it's Jennifer. Happy to be speaking with you on this winter solstice itself. And while the nights will seem long and the stars bright in the mornings still for some time now, the days are actually getting a little tiny bit longer every day from here on out. Do you feel the new sense of brightness? In this conversation with Laura, one of the things I love is this idea of the brightness that greening up our doorways and mantles, stairways and garden gates brings to us each winter season. How this symbolic living beauty is another form of the embodiment of hope that gardening is. 
It reminds me of how sad I am when the last Christmas lights are taken down in my small front entry by Twelfth Night. To arrive home from work after dark and see those twinkling little lights is so uplifting. I'm a big fan of the lighted garland of greens framing my front door. What are your favorite holiday garden decorating traditions? I'd love to know. Make sure to share these with me by following along with Cultivating Place on Instagram and Facebook. And now, back to our conversation with Laura, sharing more about the holiday decorating traditions of Colonial Williamsburg, the simplest of which date back to the 1600s. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to hear more from Laura Viancourt about the annual decking of the halls at the historic colonial Williamsburg buildings and grounds in Williamsburg, Virginia. Laura was just sharing with us the variety of the residential and tradesman buildings and grounds in the historic district how practicalities were important, but that gardens were as much about status as they were about production. If a wealthy landowner had a lovely house, she wanted it framed like a piece of art with her grounds. Welcome back. And that is one of the fun things about walking through the historic district is you sort of walk along and there's, you know, some little sheep in the in the meadow and it's sort of overgrown and they're adorable and then you walk next door and you have like you say this sort of ornamental parterre garden with topiary boxwood and hedges and very geometric patterns and then you walk a little further and you see that wonderful demonstration kitchen garden um, that's there off the main street and uh, has the little shop with the different the different garden things and the gardeners there are so friendly and uh, willing to talk to you and share information. How how many people do you have on your horticultural staff, Laura? Uh, currently, I have 16 horticulturalists, and that also includes our irrigation and IPM technician, our arborist and nursery person. So I basically have eight horticulturalists that do all the high-style, fine gardening. And then we have others uh, that help us do all the mowing and the other gardens. But on my staff, we have the 16. Are those staff members also involved or in charge of ongoing research into the history of the gardens and horticulture there? The managers do some research. I had done more in my um, previous role as manager of garden programs, but we work very closely with the historic area staff and share resources. We work very closely with the staff in the historic area and share our information, particularly the historic gardens at the garden shop you referenced earlier, and they will share their current research because we're always learning new things because uh, documents become available we didn't have. Or as we learn more, we look at what we already knew in a different light. So we are always um, researching. I wish I had more time for it, but it's like a kid in a candy store. Once you start, it's hard to get out of it because it just leads to more questions and you just want to stay looking at all these wonderful original documents we have here in our library. Right. And and quite a bit of publication has come from the historic 
um, garden staff there in terms of you know the history of the gardens and the history of say the the holiday decorations and it's been it is a rich resource already but i can see where it would be so fun when new new elements come to light that would give you more information and i guess that's reflected in something you mentioned about your shift over the last 37 years into greater and greater authenticity so when you were uh, mentioning and describing the uh, kitchen gardens and the orchards. Give us an example of some of the varieties of herbs and what we now call vegetables and orchard trees that you are growing there specifically because they were original species that would have or varieties that would have been grown in the original time. I think the largest variation is with the vegetables, uh, probably because of plant breeding with for trucking industry and all. There's been a the largest difference in vegetables, whereas in colonial times, there was a lot more variety because of seasonality. And you had people saving seed year to year because you it was hard. To, you didn't, we are so spoiled today. I mean, the first nice weekend, we go out to the garden center and pop open the trunk and load up with plants. But in colonial times, there wasn't that luxury till much later in the 1700s. So it was critical that you save seed. And you had more variety because you had... Um, you had to use the plant right then and there. You weren't looking for storage capabilities or transportation properties of the fruits and vegetables. And we have things that aren't popular today, uh, things like scarrots, which was a root crop, but it can be a little woody uh, if it gets too old, like a carrot, but that was something very popular, whereas broccoli was not. So you just have changes in taste occurring over time. But there was much more variety, which I think made it more appealing because of lack of refrigeration. You had a larger variety of beans, particularly the shell drying beans, because you didn't have to preserve them. You had oh, not many tomatoes yet. That's one thing that we probably have more of um, later on in the 1800s, but fruits, hundreds of kinds of apples. And I think that might be because the gentry had a particular interest in fruit culture. And so we would have things like the wine saps and the Spittenbergs and um, a variety of apples we don't have today. And the herbs, I think, are probably the most similar um, you see a lot of hybrids today, but basically the herbs were some of the earliest plants brought over to, for medicinal, culinary, insecticidal reasons, and they have not changed as much. Fortunately, because of organizations like Seed Savers, we can find these old vegetables and keep them going, but we have really lost a huge diversity in our vegetables and fruits today. Yeah, yeah. And it's one of the the great resources to be found in some of our historic gardens across the country, you know, Monticello and others, you, what you're doing there. 
and their ability to identify what the varieties were and then to search for those seeds and get them back into production is is a great gift to our horticultural world today, I think. Right, and, and I don't want to get on a soapbox much, but that, I think that's one of the important lessons to learn is the importance of variety and that the lack of variety impacts the whole food chain because certain insects feed on certain vegetables and that sort of thing. And it's just important, I think, that we encourage as much variety in our uh, vegetable world as possible. And just the whole idea of seasonality. I have kids, and even adults, I'm sad to say, that will come to the garden in February and ask where the green beans are because they can go buy green beans in the grocery. So I think... um, Going back to one of your original comments about the charm, I think it's just the time. There's sort of a slower time because there's a season. The seasonality is very strong here. Very, very strong. And that brings us to the season we are in right now. And I think, again, it's important to reiterate that it is really beautiful to come to historic Williamsburg and experience these gardens and the the period uh, staff who work in the colonial district and or the historic district and the incredible beauty of the holiday decorations is just it is an aesthetic, I don't know, treat. And Yet there's a lot of education there. There are there are underlying messages there that are really important to the cultural literacy of what gardens bring to our to our world. I think. Right, I totally agree, and thank you for the compliment because <laughs> I I feel the same way. Yeah, it is a yeah. special time, and at Christmas, our designers do an amazing job every year creating beautiful decorations from plants that the colonists would know. Although colonists would not have adorned their doors with decorations like we do, we use materials that they would recognize. So give us a little bit of information about what you do know about what colonial residents would have done to decorate their homes or their gardens at the holiday season in the in that time period? Well, I think the song Deck the Halls with Boughs of Holly sums it up pretty well. We rely on English prints for a lot of that, and you'll see greens used tucked behind picture frames or in vases on mantles. You may have put some holly sprigs and panes on the windows and the muttons, but it was a very simple greening such as the song relays. We have very little uh, references to exterior decorations. We did find a Hogarth print that shows a bunch of greens over a tavern sign. But the um, decorations that we have today was something foreign to the colonists. And the when was the the Christmas tree was not really a popular item or the the Christmas wreath I don't think until the Victorian time period is that accurate That is accurate and actually the first Christmas tree in Virginia was here at the St George Tucker House when a German professor at the College of William and Mary 
was invited to have a supper at the St. George Tucker House for Christmas. He asked if he could introduce his German custom of a small tabletop tree to the house. So that is the only uh, public place in the historic area that we have a Christmas tree is in the St. George Tucker House. But I, I guess I should explain why we do this. If it, <laughs> um, I go back to when the restoration started, and it was just a handful of buildings in a neighborhood. And we had a lot of people coming to see this restoration. And the early administration was surprised so many people were coming here. So he asked the historians to delve into what the customs were, which was very little. I mean, if George Washington, all he did was on Christmas Day go to church and have supper, you can be sure that most people weren't doing much either. However, Reverend Goodwin knew that it would not be popular if we did not do any decorating for Christmas. And he felt a compromise had to be done between modern expectations and authenticity. That's when it was decided to have an old-fashioned Christmas based on English traditions and Virginia customs. That's when Mrs. Fisher, our first flower lady, started to do just simple greening outside. Again, this is four or six buildings. And we had the simple roping and the simple wreaths. And after a few years, she was inspired by the artist Luca Della Robbia and um, Grindling Gibbons to attach fruit to the greenery. And at the same time, Colonial Williamsburg started to have more buildings. And we were only decorating for the 12 days of Christmas. So I tell guests that it was just a compromise to create an old-fashioned holiday in a time when it was mostly a town, not a museum. Whereas today, uh, people come here expecting these decorations and would be very disappointed if they weren't here. Yes, they would be very disappointed if the Della Robbia uh, introduction had not taken place because it is a, a very colorful addition to the decorative history there. And and while it might not have been the early colonists who engaged in this, it's definitely a part of the evolution over time of this historic site. Right. So what what year that first tabletop tree that you represent now, um, what year would that have been? That, oh gosh, I'm thinking like 18... 15, maybe, 1816. And then Louise Fisher taking this to the next step. What year would that have been? That would have been the 1930s, because by the 19, by the end of the 1930s, the Williamsburg look had already become a decorating sensation in magazines across the country. Right, right. And I know that by the 1940s, that's when we started the decorating contest, because it was a means to get the residents to decorate in a more natural way so that they weren't using tinsel and glitter and Santas, but using the natural ingredients. Because at that point, we still had many residents in the historic area. Right. So that brings me to 
Walk us through this whole process from when you start planning with your staff and getting word out to the residents up to the grand illumination and then through the historic district's holiday decoration tours. What what happens? What do you do? What is this contest? Describe this process and then some of the results that come from it. Well, today the town residents are all employees and it is in their lease that they decorate their building. My staff is re- responsible for decorating all the other buildings. So we pretty much do all the buildings our visitors go into as well as all the office buildings. And that's a year-round planning process because we need to make sure we have all the materials on hand so that when we start decorating in November, we start um, putting together some of the dried arrangements. But before then, we have to make sure we've placed all our orders for the miles of roping, the, gosh, thousands of wreaths that we need, as well as all the dried materials that we use to uh, decorate the wreaths with. First part of November, we pull uh, staff together and volunteers to help us put the dried arrangements together. The decorations have evolved over the year because when we started, as I mentioned, it was only about four or six buildings for the 12 days of Christmas. Now we're decorating over 100 buildings for over six weeks. Because of that, we need to use more dried materials. So we start making some of our dried arrangements and each decoration is labeled. Each designer is assigned so many buildings and they're responsible for those. As we get closer to Grand Illumination, we start making the fresh decorations so that everything is hung for the guests to see on that first Sunday in December all the residents, they need to be decorated as well. And we supply, Colonial Williamsburg supplies all the employees that live in the historic area, the greens and the fruit to make their decorations with. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. We're speaking with Head of Horticulture at Colonial Williamsburg, Laura Viencourt. She has spent more than 30 years researching, working in, and enjoying the historic gardens of Colonial Williamsburg, where every year the historic residences and businesses of the historic district are decked out in period decorations for the winter holidays. While the current decorations reflect the evolution of taste and style over the years, the plant materials used remain true to what would have been available to colonial townsfolk. Evergreens, berries, orchard fruit, imported citrus, and nuts abound for people and the town's wildlife. We'll be right back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. Hey again, it's me, Jennifer. Something Laura touches on in our conversation about how decorating tastes and styles have changed over time is how true this is. And yet, like garden styles as well, some things remain so classic and constant. Greens on a mantle, red winter berries. These constants connect us as gardeners and plant folk over time and space. And this is what I find most rewarding about cultivating place the connections I make with you and that you make with one another. 
gardeners out there in and around the world. We're everywhere. And as today's program demonstrates, we have been for a really long time. Some things don't change. Our human impulse to garden is important. In it, we find both our similarities as well as our individuality, like the wig makers using clay rollers on their Christmas wreaths at Colonial Williamsburg this year, and the bookbinder crafting paper stars. I love that. This impulse is our shared history and our future at its brightest. It makes a difference to our mindsets, to our families, to our communities, and to our environments. Following your journeys in the garden through the seasons never fails to inspire me, to keep me thinking, and to brighten my days. If you and I haven't connected yet, follow the program on Instagram or Facebook. And don't forget to head to cultivatingplace.com and sign up for my monthly newsletter of seasonal thoughts, events, and the like. It's a great way for me to stay in touch with you. After all, the whole point of Cultivating Place is to have conversations about these things we love and that connect us all. Together, we gardeners and nature lovers make a difference for the better in this world. Now back to our conversation with Laura Viencor from Colonial Williamsburg. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to hear more from Laura Viencor, the head of horticulture at Colonial Williamsburg. She's sharing with us more about the creative license the residents and tradespeople of Colonial Williamsburg put to resourceful use in competing each year in a contest for the best Christmas decorations. Blue ribbons are highly regarded. Welcome back. And then are they given creative license to do to to do what they would like? Well, we give them a little restriction. Um, <laughs> but they have to stay with the same material, something the colonists would recognize. And this year, which is I'm really excited about, we're doing something different. The individual trades, I've asked if any of them wanted to decorate their shop to reflect of their building and they have been really creative i mean they i was just so happy to see what they did to decorate their building and the guests i think find it fun too to see um how they interpret their building give us an example of that well for example the the wig shop they put a bunch of feathers in theirs and you wouldn't think about that but in the 18th century the gentrified women would go crazy with these huge wigs and put all kinds of feathers in it. And they also have some clay rollers. The um, bookbinder, she made paper roses out of the pages from the books they put together. Um, and even the guys with the... Um, Coopers and the joiners, they're, all of them, they're using elements of wood. It's just been really fun to, see, first of all, see what they come up with, but just see their enthusiasm for helping us uh, decorate the town. Yeah, yeah. And so the dried arrangements are, are gardeners cutting uh, from the gardens all summer or all through the season to create the dried materials that will then go into the dried arrangements? And if so, give us a description of a dried arrangement. 
Well, we we harvest some. We need way more than what we can harvest, so we purchase a lot. But one thing we do is our old rose hips, holly berries, a lot of uh, china berries, some of the greens uh, that we use in our decorations. We harvest a lot of the cayenne peppers, but we do purchase a lot because of the quantity. And the dried arrangements can be anything from adorning a grapevine wreath to inserting into an oasis cage, which we will use both fresh greens on and insert deck um, picks that have dried flowers or berries on them. So it's a wide assortment of how the dried materials are used. Sometimes we'll just um, take a grapevine wreath, put the dried materials on top. Then we will place that on top of a fresh wreath because we are changing our decorations out almost every other week. And the dried helps us go a little longer but people always ask, how come our things look so fresh? What do we do? Well, we're constantly changing them out. Every morning, someone on staff will go out and check every decoration that we make. And if a piece of fruit needs to be replaced, it's done on spot before the guests even come out. And then every other week, we rehang all the fresh wreaths that are out there. So we're constantly replacing, constantly refreshing, so it does look good for the guest every day. So if that, if you are completely decorated for a full six weeks, you have a full three rounds of... At least. Yeah. At least. Wow. Because sometimes we'll get up to 70, 80 degrees. So that time, those Christmases, we'll actually do four rotations. Well, that should make every gardener out there feel a little more relaxed about the pressure for the holiday decorations in their home and garden because it's not that much pressure <laughs> compared to what you are taking on, Laura. I have no sympathy when people complain about <laughs> at the end of the season putting their decorations away because we recycle a lot. So all those cages We'll save the cage part. We try to recycle as much of the pine wreaths or grapevine wreaths, as much of the materials we can. So that's a lot to put away. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do try to recycle as much as we can. And um, we are decorated up till past New Year. So after the first of the years, when we take everything down and, and put it back and, as I said, try to preserve as much as we can. Yeah. So describe for for listeners who may not be familiar with the Della Robbia style, give a description of of one of the more ornate uh, designs, maybe over a doorway and on a wreath and in a garland. Well, Luca Della Robbia was a Renaissance artist that used terracotta as his medium. And he would have... Um, as the focal point, for example, the Madonna and child. And circling that art would be a, f- a series of nature, be it fruit, nuts, berries, leaves, or flowers. But it was always a wreath of natural ingredients. And that's where the term Della Robbia wreath came from. So uh, as it applies to our decorations, we it's a solid ring a solid circle of fruit and it can be all the same apples or it can be a mixture of 
fruit. And we will use that traditionally on certain buildings, for example, for example, the Roscoe Coal House. We always have a Delarubia wreath at that area because it's a little landing you can stand on. And it's been a real favorite for families to take their annual Christmas photograph. They like to go stand on the landing with this traditional Delarubia wreath in front of them. And it's just a beautiful, very festive, very aromatic decoration, but it is high maintenance. That's something that we will have to change out at least um, three times during the season. And the birds love us, the squirrels love us. And um, <laughs> for that reason, we're constantly changing things out. I, we do try to incorporate as many fresh ingredients like the fruit in our decorations, particularly on the shady side of the street. And I would tell uh, the audience that, that when you are selecting your decoration, you know, what's the exposure? If it's in full sun, you might not want to go with as much fruit, as fresh fruit as you would dry. Whereas if you have um, a portico or shade, that is much easier to have a lot of fresh fruit because of the protection it gives it. Right. And so, you know, you're looking at this beautiful wreath or overdoor arch, and it has these beautiful apples, pears, oranges, lemons, limes, this kind of thing, um, other berries. How do you how do you prepare those to put into a wreath or on um, an arch? We have to put things on a lot more securely than you would at your own home. For one thing, our doors are opened much more than someone's home. But people, for better or worse, like to see how things are made, and they like to move things around, <laughs> stick their finger in there. So we have to make sure things are attached firmly. We will do that one of two ways. We will either take a florist pick for some of the more um, smaller things like berries and flowers. A florist pick has a small little wire on it that you can wrap around the stems and then we'll use floral tape to make that even snugger on the wire. Mm -hmm. Or else we'll take florist wire, which are long, maybe 18 inch pieces of straight wire in different thicknesses and insert it through the fruit, through the core of the fruit so that it holds on to it. And then those two wires are bent to go through the wreath and then tied underneath so that it's held on there very sturdily. And until it's time to take off, hopefully we'll stay on there. We usually, what we like to say is after we make a wreath, we drop it on the floor. And if, any, <laughs> if anything comes off, it needs to be reattached. <laughs> Oh, I'm hoping that my my front door does not need that kind of. No, um, your front door <laughs> does not. No, um, and I'm I'm seeing this fabulous sort of children's book in the making. Maybe there's one out there about the the squirrels and mice and birds of Williamsburg at Christmas and how happy they are about all of the treats that people put out for them each oh year. Oh my gosh, I I <laughs> joke that they all invite their relatives down for the holidays and they never leave. I, they are they are so spoiled. I mean, they basically just come out our carpenters. I have to mention our wonderful carpenters that help us install everything cuz some of these decorations can weigh 60 to 70 pounds like those Delarobia wreaths when you have all that fruit on it they're very heavy so our carpenters install everything for us because we have 
88 original buildings to the 1700s. And just because of the wear and tear they get, we want to make sure that these decorations are attached firmly. But here come the carpenters with our decoration. They'll have this little ring of squirrels just sitting there waiting for the old one to come down and the new one to go up. <laughs> and um, they get, they are fat little things, but they're happy. And um, lots of guests get pictures of our decorations with a little bird sitting on a piece of fruit or a squirrel. But it's all, it's all part of the magic that goes on here. Right. So, you know, there is, there is this great deal of fun and festivity involved in these kinds of preparations and plans, as hard as that work is, I know. And I think this is true in most cultures across time. But do you find any specific insights into this universal impulse to, to ornament our lives at the onset of winter based on the colonial manner of doing it and the the richness of how Colonial Williamsburg does it now. Again, I go back to the seasonality and just the timeliness, that there's a time for everything. And at our church, Burton Parish Church, the garden is filled with evergreens because of their symbolism of life. And I think the simple greening of the houses in colonial times and us today bring some life to a, a time of year that is more quiet and more gray. And for that reason, I think just the simple greening makes it more festive in addition to the fragrance. And again, I go back to the fires that are around too, too just the crackling of that in the background and the way it flickers on the arrangements. It, it just creates a magic that I hope helps us all slow down a little to appreciate this special time of the year. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to add about where people can find information or the importance of this time in Williamsburg for you, Laura? Well, we do, as you mentioned earlier, we do have some publications. One of the best ones we have is by Libby Oliver, that if you're just starting out and interested in making decorations, it's a wonderful resource because it lists everything you need from how many picks, how many pieces of fruit, wonderful diagrams on how to do each step. So I would recommend that if you're interested in doing it. And, and even just start small. That's the important thing. It can get overwhelming if you try to take on a Delarobia wreath. But just going out and collecting any... Um, local greenery that you have and maybe just putting some a few pieces of fresh greens on your mantle intermixed with your faux if you have faux just to start appreciating the smell of it or just something getting a simple green wreath and um, putting a bow on it so that when you go in and out of your house you you smell that wonderful fragrance and it just causes you to pause for a minute. Thank you very much for being a guest today, Laura. It's been an honor to have you, and you must be very tired, and I hope you have a wonderful holiday. And best to you too, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. Laura Viencor is the head of horticulture and the lead person preparing the historic colonial Williamsburg homes and gardens for the holidays. It's a very garden and plant-based holiday tradition that has evolved over centuries. 
She tells us that in the 18th century, gardens reflected status. King William and Queen Mary both loved horticulture. And there in Williamsburg at the time, Governor Spotswood thought the gardens should be grand. Over the centuries, the winter holiday decorations have become just as grand. Just as in the gardens of colonial Williamsburg throughout the year, in the holiday decorations, you get a strong sense of the geometry, formality, mirroring, balance, and symmetry valued in these gardens. All while avoiding non-period materials such as ribbons, fake greens or other plastics, tinsel, or electric Christmas lights. It's a very garden Christmas. Laura joined us today from the studios of WHRO in Williamsburg, Virginia. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Thank you for listening. To see many photos illustrating the rich beauty of Colonial Williamsburg at Christmas, visit cultivatingplace.com. Even better, join in the conversations by following Cultivating Place on Instagram and Facebook. I'd love to hear about your favorite holiday decorating traditions. And if you enjoyed this program, please share it with others. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. The program is made possible in part by the Stanley Smith Horticultural Trust. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Our communications coordinator is Casey Gardner. Original theme music by Matt Schultz. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.